Amen. So I'm going to ask you, if you would, to look at the front of your bulletin, if you have one. And you see those words, those riveting title for our sermon today, Substitutionary Atonement. And uh, you probably got BJ's email yesterday, and you saw that on the front of the bulletin. You thought, boy, I can't wait to get to church on Sunday. He's going to talk about substitutionary atonement theory. That's exciting. No, no, your reaction was not that at all. Um, It was in August of 2006, I went to a church conference in Chicago, and the presenter, Bill Hybels, who was at that time kind of the leader of evangelicalism across North America, at least uh, looked to as a pretty prominent person, Uh, within the evangelical movement, and um, he, this was his subject matter for a 30-minute talk at at a conference with thousands and thousands of pastors, and I thought, what a peculiar topic to to talk about at, uh, I mean, wouldn't you want to talk about church growth theory? Wouldn't you want to talk about um, reaching the lost? Why substitutionary atonement theory? Well, 12 years later, we see why it's so important that he established that particular topic at that time. It's because the, the, the theme of social justice has become such a popularized theme among evangelicals that it's almost come to the point that we no longer recognize what the purpose of the church is. Is the purpose of the church to advocate for a cause? Or is the purpose of the church to advocate for a personal relationship with Jesus? Is it somehow both? What what does God at work look like? And so for the rest of this series as we move forward, we're going to be tackling these themes of social justice. We're going to be tackling uh, those sorts of concepts. But to set the foundation for this, we really need to establish what exactly it is, the purpose, the ultimate purpose of the church. What did Jesus come for? And so this idea of the substitutionary atonement theory captures it at its best, okay? Our scripture today uh, comes from Matthew chapter 27. We're going to take a look at a guy by the name of Barabbas and uh, how Jesus was on trial and Barabbas was on trial and the different events that took place there. And this will all capture this concept of substitutionary atonement. So if you would, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. We're going to be Matthew chapter 27, reading verses 15 through 17, and then jumping to read verses 20 through 23. Let's read together beginning at verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then had, hold on, I messed up. Just stop for a second. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? Skipping forward to verse 20. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. You may be seated. Okay. Let's kind of walk through these verses together, and then we'll get to that most important question here in just a little bit. Beginning at verse 15, it says, Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release uh, for the crowd, for the people, one prisoner, a prisoner of their choosing. 
um, whom they wanted. And best we know, this was just a, a Roman tradition that had cropped up because the Jewish people were pretty unruly. They were very difficult for the, Jew, for the Romans to be able to control. And so this was just really a concession. This was a, a matter of goodwill that once a year at Passover, very holy week for the Jewish people, as a matter of goodwill, we'll release one of our prisoners by the people's choosing. And so that's what they decide to do, verse 16. And so they had at that time a notorious prisoner named Barabbas. And so this guy Barabbas had a reputation about him. What do we know about Barabbas? Well, we know that his name means son of the father. Some commentators have suggested that Barabbas' father, because back in that time, rabbis, important rabbis, used to refer to themselves as father. And so perhaps Barabbas' dad was one of these important rabbis. And so he was the son of of the father, right? Son of a important rabbi. That's what some think. Others think that this was just a street name that Barabbas went by. Perhaps it wasn't his real name. Um, in fact, Luke chapter 23 tells us the reason why Barabbas was in jail is because he was an insurrectionist. It's because Barabbas had gone around uh, participating in guerrilla warfare against the Romans and that he was there for murder in prison. Barabbas, um, uh, you know, these guys back in Jesus' day were called Sakari. And uh, they were an insurrectionist group who believed that if they assassinated enough Roman officials, that the Romans would eventually just say, you know, it's not worth it trying to control these people. It's not worth it trying to maintain this little patch of ground here. Let's just leave the Jewish people to themselves. Let's get out of here. And so that's kind of what Barabbas was hoping would happen. And so in the case of Barabbas, this is what he had done. He had led a revolt of some kind there in Jerusalem against the Roman people. He had uh, assassinated someone. He had committed murder. He had been caught. He had been tried. He had been convicted of this crime. And he was in jail anticipating the carrying out of his sentence. He was supposed to be crucified. And everybody in town, remember he was notorious, knew who Barabbas was. Verse 17, so when they had gathered, Pilate said to the crowd, whom do you want me to release? So he brings out Barabbas, he brings out Jesus, and they're standing there and he says, or do you want me to release Jesus, the one who's called the Christ, the Christos? And so it's interesting that even uh, Pilate recognizes that Jesus has this term associated with him. The word Christos is the Greek term for the Hebrew term Messiah. He's calling Jesus the Christ in front of everybody saying, this is your Messiah. Which of these two people do you want me to release? You want me to release Jesus, your Messiah, or do you want me to release the notorious criminal convicted uh, Barabbas? Verse 18, for he knew that it was out of envy that the people had delivered um, him, to him up. Verse 19, besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, Pilate's wife had sent word to him, sent him a little note, um, and saying, and here's what the note said, have nothing to do with that righteous man, she's referring to Jesus, and here's why, because I have suffered greatly. Uh, because of a dream. Apparently she had had a dream either the night before, I'm not sure how the text flows there, but, or maybe it was earlier that afternoon she had taken a nap. I'm not sure how that, no, it wouldn't happen in the morning. It was in the morning. So it was during the night that she had had her dream and she suffered in this dream. And so um, because of that, she sends this note to Pilate saying, don't mess with Jesus. Um, I've had some, I got a really bad feeling about messing with Jesus. Verse 20, now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. So the chief priests get in there, they tell the people, hey, look, no matter what happens here, Jesus has got to be the one that gets crucified. And so they get the whole crowd churned up and get the whole crowd turned against Jesus. Verse 21, the governor, Pilate, again says, because they already told him, hey, look, this is what we want you to do. We want you to crucify Jesus. We're not interested in having Barabbas. We want Jesus crucified. Verse 21, so the governor said again to them, because he didn't like the answer they gave him the first time, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Verse 22, Pilate said to the people, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called 
the Christ. Again, he's referring to Jesus here as the Christ. They all said, let him be crucified. So the great gathering of Jewish people, and they're shouting out at the governor, uh, crucify Jesus. Verse 23, and so Pilate said, why? He's still not, you know, first time they gave him the answer, comes back, asks him a second time, tell me again. Second time he didn't like the answer again. And then this third time he questions them to ask them, why? Why would I do this? Here's a guy who is murdered. Here's a guy who's a notorious criminal. And you have this peace-loving guy over here. My wife had a really bad dream and said, don't mess with him. Why would I want to kill? Why would you want me to kill Jesus? What evil has he done? Well, people didn't give him a a reason why. They just went on to shout all the more, let him be crucified. Um, Exclamation point, right? Verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere with his crowd, and because a riot was beginning, he took water, he washed his hands, and he sat before the crowd, and he said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. Now, was Pilate innocent of this man's blood? Was he innocent of Jesus' death? No, he wasn't innocent of Jesus' death at all. Pilate gave in to public opinion, right? Pilate gave in to uh, you know, what pe- the pressure that he was feeling. He saw a riot beginning to unfold right in front of him, and he's like, well, I guess I just got to go with sending Jesus off to be crucified, even though I know that he's done nothing wrong, even though I know that Barabbas clearly is the one who should be going to be crucified. Um, this is one of the most enduring images that we have of the crucifixion, is of Pilate washing his hands. And um, this is not a Roman tradition. This is not something that Pilate would have done or that governors would have done when they were pronouncing sentence on people. This was actually a Jewish tradition that goes all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 21. If you find a dead body when you're coming inside of a city, you're supposed to go and you're supposed to wash your hands ritually and then walk into the city with your clean hands and say, hey, look, I found a dead body outside the city and I'm not the one who did it. My hands are clean. Y'all go and get that body now. Right? And so that's what, and so I guess Pilate, because he lived amongst the Jewish people, because he was the governor of the Jewish people, knew about this tradition of washing your hands to show that you are not responsible for it, that he was just lifting that tradition from the Jewish people. They understood what he was doing. It was one of their own traditions. Now look at the response of the people, verse 25. It says, And all the people answered, His blood, this is the Jewish people shouting here at Pilate, His blood be on us and on our children. His blood be on us and on our children. In other words, the Jewish people in Jerusalem were willing to go on record in the sight of the governor, in the sight of the rabbis, and amongst their own, that they were going to take ownership of what happened to Jesus. And not only themselves, but their children too. They rejected Jesus as their Messiah. They declared that their children would reject Jesus as the Messiah, and that this rejection of Jesus by the Jews continues even to this day. Now, um, some would say, I thought the Romans were the ones who were responsible for killing the Jewish people. Because if you said that the Jewish people were the ones who were responsible for killing Jesus, then that leads to anti-Semitism. That leads to people wanting to lash out against the Jewish people. Because, But I mean, they right here in the scriptures said, we're responsible for it. We take ownership of it. Let his blood be on our, this is the Jewish people talking, on our heads and on our children's head. And God took them up on it, didn't he? Because in one generation, within 40 years, the city of Jerusalem was besieged by the Roman army. They entered into the city, and the streets ran with blood, and the temple was wiped from its foundations, and God took his vengeance upon these 
people. And they continue to be hard in their hearts, even to this day, to the idea of Jesus as the Messiah. Um, let's get back to Barabbas, verse 26. Then Pilate released Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Now, if you've seen the movie The Passion of the Christ, you know how a horrific event this was. I mean, they just meted up Jesus' back. They shredded it, and it was a horrendous affair. And the reason that I say this, the reason that I point this out, is because I want you to remember that Bar Barabbas was scheduled for that beating. Barabbas was the one who was scheduled to be crucified. Barabbas was the one who was sentenced to death, and Jesus jumped in and took his place. He, he was a substitute for what rightly should have happened to Barabbas. Barabbas was sentenced and guilty of the things that he'd been accused of. And it was Jesus, though, who stepped in to his place. Okay, well, that's the end of our passage for today. And so that means it's time for us to ask that really important question. What difference does this make to my life, right? Uh, we love that question. We've been, or at least I do, because um, I keep asking it every week. But in any case, um, what difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, I mean, so many years ago, Barabbas, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's like an old case, right? And so what difference does that make to me where I'm living today? Well, let's talk a little bit about that. Um, you know, this idea that Jesus stepped in the way and took the hit for what really should have happened to Barabbas, that Jesus stepped in front of that, took the, took the hit, took the strike, took the blow, is this idea of this substitutionary atonement. And it goes all the way back into the Old Testament, and it's a thread that runs all through the Old Testament right up until Jesus is on the cross. So let's go back and take a look at this, back to Adam and Eve, all the way back in the garden. You say, Gordon, you don't really believe that stuff about Adam and Eve. Of course I do. Of course I believe that they're real people. And one of the reasons why I believe they're real people is because I believe the Word of God. And the Word of God tells that Adam and Eve are real people. Another reason why I believe that they're real people is because Jesus believes that they were real people. He talks about Adam and Eve. There are several different times in the Scriptures and the Gospels where Jesus is recorded referring back to, the, to Genesis, to the story of creation, as though it was real historical events. I was watching a TV show earlier this week. Um, we're getting the Smithsonian Channel. Anybody ever get the Smithsonian Channel? Anyway, they're flying over Dakotas. I thought this was interesting. And so they're showing different parts of the Dakotas. And they're talking about, in North Dakota, this massive oil boom that's taken place over the last five, six, seven years, something like that. And because there's these massive shale oil deposits, and the way that they get at this stuff is they pump water and pump sand way down 2,000 feet down into the ground, and they break up all the shale, and that allows the, the crude oil to just then flow up the pipes, and they can pump all this stuff up out of the ground. And there's this massive oil deposit that covers probably about three-quarters of the state of North Dakota and runs on up into Canada. It's a tremendous oil deposit there. And uh, so there's you know, a big oil boom that's happening in, in the Dakotas. Well, um, as they're talking about this, I'm thinking to myself, all of a sudden the commentator says something about how this oil got there, right? I'm off the subject, but that's okay. Y'all good with that? So just a little bit later to, to lunch. So, uh, so how, how this oil got there. And so the, the theory was that 50 million years ago that this was a primordial sea covering over that part of, the, uh, of North America and that there was a huge fish kill. Anybody ever, ever have a pond and the pond turns over, right? The oxygen levels mess up and so you have a big fish kill and all the buzzards from around town come and they land on the shores and they're eating all the fish. Right? So the idea here is that you have a fish kill, and that this fish kill is so massive and so vast that the fish are, you know, 
half a mile deep, not kidding, half a mile deep, and they're gathered into a mat three-quarters of the size of the state of North Dakota. And then all of a sudden, layers of sediment out of nowhere just fall on top of all of these fish and bury them under hundreds of feet of sediment. And that pressure begins to immediately go to work on these fish, not allowing them to decompose under normal conditions, but rather allowing that biological material to begin to turn, and then eventually it becomes oil. That's how we get oil. You have massive, oil is biological material. Coal is biological material that has had huge amounts of sediment put on top of it, that over time, the pressure of that sediment then begins to compact that biological material, not allowing it to decompose under normal conditions, but rather than allowing it to turn into coal, to turn into oil. One day that coal might turn into a diamond, right? And that that's where that comes from. And so you have these massive amounts of mats of biological material, trees, things that have just gathered up into tangled mats and masses of stuff. Well, on this occasion, they said 50 million years ago with a whole bunch of fish. And I'm going, did y'all just, did, did anybody, just time out just a second, did you not think about the, uh, pro, how preposterous what you just, the theory that you just threw out there was? That there's this massive fish kill, that half a mile deep of fish, that all of a sudden gathered together into mats that are si the size of three quarters of the state of North Dakota, and that were suddenly, I mean, immediately covered over under huge layers of sediment. I mean, let's go to Genesis chapter 7, right? We can read about when that happened, right? It's just amazing to me that, the, you know, we're straining at gnats and swallowing camels. That tends to be what's going on there. Anyway, so, yeah, of course, I believe that. Jesus believed that. The Bible tells it. And even logic follows that. So it's Genesis chapter 2 and verse 16. Um, here's what God said to Adam and Eve. Y'all okay? Everybody doing all right? I have just a little something extra for you there. All right, verse 16. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, God says to them, but, verse 17, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you can't eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God was very upfront with Adam and Eve about what was going to happen if they sinned, if they disobeyed his commands. There was no secret here. In the pages of Scripture, it records over and over again what happens when you and I sin. Paul said, Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, for the wages, what you earn of sin is death. God's been very upfront about this. And that's the bad news, that when we sin, it results in death. From, but from the very beginning, God also, God also told them about the good news. And the good news is that God would allow a substitution. And so God, even in the garden, killed a lamb took the skins of that lamb, placed them on Adam and Eve, and sacrificed an animal right there in the garden at the very beginning after the very first sin had taken place. And this idea of a sin substitute continues on all throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Um, this idea that you could shed the blood of an innocent, that you could sacrifice the life of an innocent, that you could take a substitute and that that substitute could take the hit take the stroke that you and I deserve, and that God would accept that, blot, that life of the innocent for our own. So God would allow a substitute, which is where we get the idea of a substitutionary atonement. 
And so that's the good news, that God would let me go free, just like God let Barabbas go free. And that God began to teach this truth from the very beginning to people who had broken his law. He taught it to Adam and Eve. He taught it to Cain and Abel. He taught it to the Israelites living in Egypt. When the Passover lamb, when they slaughter the lamb, they take the, take the life of the lamb, they take the blood, place it on the doorpost there in Egypt. And when the death angel passed over Cairo, when the death angel passed over the land of Egypt and all the firstborn of Egypt died, the life of that lamb saved the firstborn of Israel. It forms the basis of the whole sacrificial system practiced by the Jewish people where a sinner would bring an innocent, blemish-free lamb uh, to, to the tabernacle and would then kill that lamb and the blood would be placed uh, on behalf of the people. The lamb's life would t- be a substitute for the death of the sinner. And it was practiced at the temple in Jerusalem for 12 centuries or a thousand years Uh, What was God doing? God was trying to teach his people the principle of substitution. Now, the Bible is also clear that the substitute animal wouldn't do. It wasn't a permanent way of, it was just a temporary solution. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's not going to work permanently. And so ultimately, in order to have a permanent solution, God had to send a human being, a man, for mankind. But remember the requirement, the lamb had to be blemish-free, right? It had to be pure, it had to be spotless, it had to have nothing wrong with this lamb, it had to be perfect. And so what that meant is that if a man's going to take the place of mankind, that this man had to be blemish-free, had to be perfect, had to be spotless, had to have no sin in him. And you and I know that that's, there's no such person that's ever lived, with the exception of one. And that was God himself in the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived a completely sinless life. He had to offer his life as a complete, as a spotless lamb to take the hit that you and I deserve so that God's justice, God's holiness could be satisfied. Hebrews chapter 4, middle verse 15 says that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, yet was without sin. When Jesus was having a conversation with one of the Pharisees, he turns to them and says, John chapter 8 and verse 46, He says to his enemies, which one of you can convict me of sin? In other words, which one of you can point out a sin that I've ever committed? Which one of you can do that? Nobody could. And it's interesting that even his brothers, Jude and his brother, who's his other brother? James, yeah, I was right about that. All right, I was like, no, that was the other James. All right, yeah, it's two brothers, James. They both become followers of the Lord Jesus. They say at the beginning of their letters, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are two guys who grew up on the bunk above Jesus. They knew whether or not he had sinned when he was 10 years old or when he was 8 years old or how he responded to some thing that happened that was unfair. And they, they agreed, yeah, you know what? We never in all the years that we grew up alongside of him ever saw him sin such that they were willing to give their lives over to the Lord Jesus. You know, I can make that statement. Hey, who here can convict me of sin? Who here can say that I'm guilty of sin? And my wife's hand would go, (laughs) right? My mom and dad are here, let me tell you about, right? My brother, we could bring in witness after witness, and boy, I'd I'd be out, toast. But you know what's interesting? When Jesus made this statement, there was not one single person who could step in and call his bluff, not one. It's because Jesus never sinned. He was the perfect, spotless, blemish-free, sacrificial lamb given on behalf of all of mankind. He was was a righteous sacrifice, and it took someone like him to be able to satisfy God's holiness. 
God the Father, let God the Son be our substitute. And as our substitute, God the Son, Jesus, took away the sins of the world. Jesus Christ's death on the, on the cross, my friends, satisfied God's justice. There was real human death that paid for our sins. But the beautiful thing about it is, is that you and I are not the ones who had to pay that price. Jesus took the hit for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For our sake, God the Father made God the Son sin. That is, He became sin who knew no sin. Jesus became sin. He became he took on the sins of the world upon himself when he was on the cross so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. And this is what the cross was all about. It's about the fact that God loves you so much, that God loves me so much, that he created a permanent solution to our sin problem. He created a way for you and me, like Barabbas, to be able to walk away without having to pay the price personally that we deserve. Instead, Jesus took the hit for us. Isaiah chapter 53 says it about as well as it can be said. The prophet writes, But he was wounded, talking about Jesus, wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought peace to us. What kind of peace is that? It's peace with God. It's the peace of God in our life. And that punishment was upon him. And by his stripes, by his wounds, we are healed. Verse 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Watch now. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or the punishment of us all. Jesus took the hit, friends. Jesus took the hit for you. Jesus took the hit for me. You know, Revelation chapter 2 tells us that when we get to heaven, we're all going to be given a new name. You say, hmm, I'm curious what that name's going to be. I have no idea. The Bible doesn't give us any specifics of what that might be. But I have an idea what it could be. Four little words. Call me Barabbas. Call me Barabbas. You know, if Jesus wanted to give me a name in heaven, that would fit, wouldn't it? That would be totally appropriate. I'm here, not because of something I've done. I'm here not because of something, I, you know, God let me in because I've been good enough. I'm here because Jesus took the hit for me. Just call me Barabbas. My friend, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and you're not sure if you go to heaven, but you want to go to heaven, let me tell you the secret that the only way that you get into heaven is not by becoming a good person. It's not by doing enough good things. The way that you get into heaven is by turning to Jesus as your Savior, as your sin substitute, putting your faith and your trust in what He accomplished on the cross, not in your good works, but in rather in His good works, putting your trust in that and saying, you know what, I'm a, God said that all i got to do is trust in Him, trust in the work that Jesus did for me, and that that's enough. And friends, that is enough. It's why Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. Everything that needed to be done it's done. Let me tell you, the answer that works when we get to heaven is pleading upon the blood of Christ. Jesus said, John 14 and verse 6, and I'll close with these words, no one comes to the Father, that is, no one gets into heaven, but through me. Friends, if you want to see God work in you, if you want to see God work in your family, this is where it starts. If you want to see God work in your workplace, 
this is where it starts, in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Not in some cause, not in some good works, not in your goodwill, but it starts in the finished work of Christ. Let's bow our heads. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for teaching us today about what you have done for us and showing us through all of the scriptures that this was your good news all along, that you had a perfect plan in place, that when Jesus would show up, he would accomplish all that needed to be accomplished, and that he would take the hit, he would take the stroke, he would be persecuted, he would be crucified, his life would be taken, so that, Lord, we could live with you forever. We thank you for that truth this morning. We ask, Holy Spirit, as we turn to receive these elements of reminding us of Christ's broken body and of his shed blood, that we would look with gratitude upon these, and that, Lord, if there be any here today who need to ask for forgiveness of sins, Lord Jesus, this would be that moment where they turn to you and all of eternity turns on its heel, and they can know with great surety in their heart that indeed they are headed for an eternity with you in heaven. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.